0: where we continue uh, the examination of the gospel of Matthew. Our target being these words in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew five seventeen through 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until the heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of these of the least commandments, excuse me, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness Surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Some very challenging material that is often taken very casually. We assume a lot about our initial impression of what we read and uh, perhaps make some misconnections and misunderstandings about what Jesus is talking about. And um, certainly it is our purpose to study uh, these words in their context with what Jesus is teaching in this doctrinal offer of the kingdom to national Israel in the first century when Jesus said these things. And uh, so to do that, I always want to grab as much context as, as uh, possible. And so the big context uh, is the whole Bible, but the near context is um, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, Remember, we introduced who Jesus is in chapters one through four, the first half of chapter four, where the king is introduced. And Matthew writing to Jewish Christians, I believe absolutely Matthew is writing to Jewish believers. He is telling them uh, that he is indeed the Messiah, Jesus, the one you've trusted in as Messiah. This is demonstrated in the introduction of the king the king. And then the offer of the kingdom is begun at the end of that section where John the Baptist preaches, repent for the kingdom is at hand. He, he recedes after Jesus' baptism and then his temptation. And then, then Jesus begins to proclaim, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The same message as the apostle John, obviously offering the kingdom to national Israel. And as you watch the development, uh, the thematic development of Matthew's gospel, we said it's arranged around the big messages, the big lectures, that, or the, the, the sermons, if you will, that, that Matthew selected to thematically present his message of this kingdom offer, its rejection, and the call to discipleship for these Jewish Christians in the first century, and therefore for us believers in this age of the gospel of the grace of God uh, is still waiting for this coming kingdom. In chapter 11, chapters 8 through 11, you have the anchor point is this long discourse on discipleship of chapter 10 the sending of these disciples forward. And it's not so much the mission that they went on that Matthew emphasizes, it's the teaching that Jesus offered to equip them and prepare them. And I call that disciples number one, that they're going to go forth with this responsibility only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then the turning point in Matthew's development is the king is opposed, the offered kingdom is opposed by the, na- the nation to whom it was offered, and they accuse him of casting out demons in the power of Satan. And that is chapters, really the, the narrative leading up is chapter 11, but then the long uh, kingdom parables that we talk about where Jesus is speaking to them in judgment by teaching these parables of this intervening period in waiting for this coming kingdom You have the great kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13. The next big discussion that Jesus gives is the discourse on more discipleship, more training for his disciples with narratives leading up to that, um, discussing this theme. And then finally, the great Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25, which is, uh, very much paralleled by what John arranges in his apocalypse in the in the book of Revelation, Matthew twenty four and twenty five, um, and the what's 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 the ultimate? Uh, actually, the the disciples asking a couple of questions and he answers them. And in this section, and notice I haven't included all the narrative, I haven't talked about all the narratives leading up to these because the way Matthew is presenting the stories, the little pericopes, little pieces of ministry in Jesus' life, they're all leading to these big messages like we just saw in chapters one through four leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. So, um, and then you have the gospel events of the crucifixion, uh, the death and burial and resurrection of our Savior and his instructions for his disciples uh, to conclude the gospel. So that's the gospel of Matthew. And it's very important to understand as you read this, maybe with American eyes, we want to read a biography, but it's not that. It doesn't tell you um, special insights into the, the development of the character so you understand its motivations and decisions as an adult. It's not a, it's not a biography. That's not the purpose. It's for people that are believers in Christ to understand what his expectations of us are as disciples while we try to ponder why the Old Testament promises were not fulfilled in the first advent. What, what was promised of the coming kingdom has not materialized. And is it isn't because it's a only spiritual kingdom all the time. It's because... The material aspects of that offered kingdom have to be present to a nation that actually receives it as we, as Jesus develops in um, the promise of his second coming in the Olivet Discourse. So this is the gospel of Matthew in outline. And we've talked about this next section that we're in where we're seeing the platform of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, and the narratives that lead up to it. And we said you have Jesus relocating to Capernaum and his ministry in, in chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. You have the calling of the Galilean disciples Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're, again, thematically arranged um, after uh, beginning this ministry in Capernaum. And then, and then you have various uh, events in the life of, in the ministry of Jesus that are the works of the kingdom. And then the words. And notice this is always a thing. in the In the gospel, Jesus does this miraculous work, but the purpose of the miraculous work is to authenticate the words that are even more miraculous. In God's economy of righteousness and justice and infinite goodness, the idea that we broken, fallen, undeserving, sinful people would be made fit for him and acceptable to him is a much greater miracle than the lame man be stand, stand up and walk or someone uh, rise even from the dead to physical life. The wonderful miracles of Christ are, if you watch it in the Gospels, they're tokens, They're tokens of kingdom power and kingdom offer. But the bigger thing is that Jesus paid for your sins and offered you eternal life so that you could be resurrected and saved not only from all physical ailment, the problem of physical death, all of those things, but also the spiritual problems, which are uh, much greater in, in their magnitude. Infinite righteousness, in other words, is a really big deal. So I want to get into what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, our section is 517 through 20 today. Jesus teaches the in chap, this is this is kind of a summary of chapter 5. He teaches the righteousness of God and God's future expectations and the, the, what the Mosaic law requires. In 5, 1 through 12 you have this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which is called the Beatitudes. And I w- I've been very offensive with you about the Beatitudes because I translate them with a, a little bit different way than the modern English. I don't say blessed, I say happy, because the word makarios doesn't mean someone says something. The word means someone is experiencing something. It means the state of being that someone is enjoying because of God's blessing in this case. The happiness is a God-given happiness. It's a God-given state of bliss, and it's a future-anticipated bliss that he's talking about, and it really will change your life to ponder the Beatitudes and consider that he is talking to his disciples. And when he turns it on, then blessed are you, as we'll see, it really makes it dramatic that they should consider themselves this way. We also saw that we're the salt of the earth, the disciples, as they are salt of the earth and the light of the world in five, thirteen through 16. And that is the burden of discipleship. You are not called to go along and get along with this world. You are called to represent Jesus Christ and his righteousness in it. And that means that you can adopt the typical approach of whatever makes me comfortable is what I choose. That's the way the world does it. That's the way, as Jesus will call it, the Gentiles do it, the rest of the world. But you, the disciples, are called to make decisions on a different basis. And it is because you have a commission, a mission, a responsibility. And it's a high and marvelous calling, and it will hurt. But the pain is temporary, this too shall pass, and the glory, the bliss that is God's gift to you forever in His presence is eternal. In 5.17-20, through 20, though, our passage today, you have this introduction to Jesus teaching the Mosaic Law. And I have a little bit of a controversial position on this as well. You've heard it said, but I say to you, never contradicts what the Mosaic Law teaches. Jesus never contradicts Moses, some will say that because obviously there's been a change from the law of Moses. There's been something that's happened in in world history. When when Matthew wrote these things, the the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to introduce this age of the church, it it, it was a 30 years ago kind of thing um, on on a conservative estimate of Matthew's date when he wrote. And so um, uh, Jesus doesn't change the Mosaic law. He repudiates the misinterpretation of it that it satanically clouded the hearts of the people so that they could not see through Moses to Christ. And they did not receive Christ because they did not really receive Moses, what Moses had written. And so we're going to get into some of that today. The point of the law has always been the righteousness of God. And those of you who think that you're under the Mosaic law today, I disagree with you. Those of you who think that the Mosaic law is by nature legalistic, I disagree with you. If you think there's a problem with the law because of some deficiency in it, I don't think that's what the Scriptures teach. I dogmatically insist it's infinitely righteous, holy, and good from the very thinking of God. I think you're under a different arrangement today. But all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 about the Mosaic Law. So I would say that um, it's complicated. But what you and I get from reading what Jesus taught and the age in which we live, the age to which Matthew wrote about people that weren't yet in this situation that we're in today, what, what, I, what I'm saying is what you see in this instruction is the righteousness of God that the Mosaic law was pointing to. And as Paul will teach us completely in congruence with, with what Matthew says, what Jesus teaches through Matthew, what Paul is saying as an apostle of Jesus Christ is that the law in its perfect goodness is showing us our sinfulness and our weakness. But in the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, there's no law that legislates or censures the walk by the Spirit with its fruit of love. There is no law against these things. The law is to show you your sin, your brokenness, and it therefore is the depiction of God's righteousness. And in that sense, we must embrace it it's been popular recently to say that we must untether our theology from the Mosaic law, from the Old Testament. I've heard that saying. Maybe you know that quote is that what Christians need to do today, evangelicals, is to untether our thinking from the law or from the Old Testament. And the reason that's being said in some popular quarters is because the, the Old Testament is very explicit about sexual sin and sexual deviancy. That's the reason that the pop theologians are saying disconnect from the Mosaic law because they're dealing with a very real problem of sexual deviancy that's being normalized in the culture. And they're trying to say, how do we deal with this? And one of the liberal answers is, well, you know, Jesus is is an improvement on the law. Jesus does a better thing with God's grace than than the Old Testament says certain things are an abomination to God. So they're opposing Jesus, they're opposing Jesus to the law. And that's not the New Testament. That's not what the scriptures do. The Mosaic law is the sort of the foundation teaching for the entirety of the Old Testament and the entirety of God's Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures are the foundation out of which grows the New Testament. And we are built on the unalterable, unassailable promises of God to Abraham from, from the earliest of uh, God's revelation to this one man in Genesis 12, we are building from the expectation of what God has promised and that God who can only tell the truth and cannot lie, that he'll do what he said. We're building everything from, so you cannot oppose Jesus to the Old Testament. You just have to understand this is complicated as we'll see. I'm very excited about 5:21 through48, where Jesus teaches the righteousness of God expected by the people under the law. this is what God called for. And it's not just that I don't physically do certain things, it's that I don't go there in my thinking either, because it's an inside-out righteousness that God is calling for. for in 5:21 through 48, let me just summarize, and then we'll get into the little passage here. In the Mosaic Law on Righteousness, in this little section of 520-48, through 48, you have the first piece is murder and God's righteousness. When you read it, he, he, he talks about, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And then he talks about anger and hatred of your brother and how there's a heart problem before there's a hands problem. And that's, that's the consistent thing he's going to do through all of these. The next uh, law he uses as an example is adultery, 527-30, through 30, and he's, he's saying that it's not just in your body, it's also in your heart heart. It's, it's, it's in your eyes. It's before you ever physically did something, there's a corruption and a sin that's already of the same essence as the physical act. Three, 531 through 32, the question from adultery leads directly to the consideration of divorce. You know, because although 2,000 years ago, those primitive people didn't deal with the complexities of this life. You know, they, they didn't have any way to speak to our situation here in our sophisticated uh, sociological context right? Oh, no. Talking about adultery, which is a heart problem, is immediately discussing a divorce, which, of course, they're struggling with. Apparently, it's so important that for Jesus to teach about the Mosaic law and demonstrate God's righteousness through it, he's got to go here in this discussion. It's interesting what he selects and what he doesn't. Because, because um, well, you know, the only sin in the Bible, the fornication is not the only sin in the Bible, this marital act that's supposed to be between husband and wife that then wouldn't be fornication. That's not the only sin in the Bible. You evangelical Bible thumpers want to make a big deal about that. No, the Bible makes a big deal about that. When you teach baby believers that are getting it right, you encourage them and say, keep doing it, Thessalonians. You go right there when you go to application in 1 Thess 4. You start talking about this topic because it's so pervasive and problematic. And I want to tell you, I love you. And as we're discussing the outline, when Jesus gets into the law, he talks about the problem of sexual sin and and its fruit. I just want to love you and tell you there is nothing good for you outside of God's design of marriage when it comes to human sexuality. There's nothing good for you to look at. There's nothing good for you to engage in. There's no good there except for a momentary temporal enjoyment of a physical experience that God designed to be a blessing in marriage. So it's even stolen there. There's nothing there for you if you want to walk in the bliss that God offers. And as believers, I want to challenge you that, in fact, there's great discipline and suffering for you there. And so Jesus has to go into this discussion of adultery and divorce. In 533-37, through 37, five short verses on vows. And God's righteousness, the taking of vows, and whether it's—and notice—he's also addressing cultural things. The—the the same book, Matthew. They come and ask him about divorce. He's talking about things that are in their conversation in that day. Vows and righteousness. In five thirty-eight through forty-two, the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Uh, Love your neighbor, uh, love your brother, and hate your enemy. You've heard it said. This is not in the Mosaic Law what Jesus teaches here. He's saying you've been taught a false tradition that is supposedly built on some of the teachings of the Mosaic Law, but this is not what I teach. This is not what I gave you at the burning bush. In 543 through 47, the love of one's neighbor and the righteousness of God. And then the summary in 548 will blow us away. It is a theological summary that you cannot escape. That puts us all back in the Beatitudes, mourning and grieving and meek and broken because we are not perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We are not going to meet the standard Jesus summarizes in 548 when he teaches the Mosaic Law. And there is no argument between Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and the book of Romans. All those good people that inherit eternal life by their good works in Romans 2, by the time you get to Romans 3, don't exist. And that's hard for some people because they, they thought they saw themselves in Romans 2. And then he, he pulls the rug right out from under us. We're not good. We're not righteous. Oh, I keep the Sermon on the Mount. No, the Sermon on the Mount was to show you that your heart needs a, tra- a transformation. And so he's teaching the law. And it's beautiful to hear the lawgiver. So this is, this is the, the chapter 5. I want to kind of summarize chapter 5 and then dive in. So where we are so far, let's read chapters 1, verses 19 through 20. This is my translation uh, not, uh. Uh, verses, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 1 through um, 16, and then we'll jump into verse 17 in detail. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount was a teaching event. So next time someone tells me, when you're preaching, preach, and when you're teaching, teach, I'll just, let's go to the sermon. Do we agree that that's the Sermon on the Mount? Then I can teach when I preach, okay. And happy are the poor in spirit, he says, in the Beatitudes, the first. The poor in spirit, Why? The differential is poorness, is poverty, but the, the resolution of that dif- differential, and that's not good that they're poor in spirit, is inheritance of the kingdom. They own everything. And that's true of, as we read the New Testament, we continue to read, Jesus is the heir of all things, and we are fellow heirs with Christ. That's Hebrews and Romans. Jesus is the heir of all things, and we're fellow heirs with Him in Romans 8 happy are the poor in spirit. In other words, he is painting a picture of disciples in the time in which he's speaking. The disciple of the Lord Jesus is aware of his need for repent for the kingdom is at hand. He's aware of his poverty and his need. Happier are those who mourn because they'll be comforted. Happier are the meek because they will inherit the earth. Happier are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. Makarios, again, my translation, if you just look it up in your lexicon, it just, it means happy. Now, the reason I'm not translating it blessed is because I want to be careful with what Jesus says and say that he's not drawing a distinction between blessedness and happiness. He's telling you the avenue to happiness is holiness. That's what this passage does. Happy are the merciful because they'll receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart because they'll see God. Happy are the peacemakers because they will be be called the sons of God. There's so much about inheritance through here if you think about it. So much of him inviting his disciples to participate with him in his father's great and grand project. There's so much of disciple with me. Drop your nets and follow. Oh, but I've got to bury my father. No, you can't come. Anybody that will just come along and let go of themselves and be part of this work is going to become worthy of him because he'll make them. And you got to be, there's willingness. And there's so much that you would um, you would just let go of every other thing and just follow the Lord Jesus. I had a schedule, Lord. The Lord says, put down your iPhone and follow me. Oh, I can't, I can't, I, can't. I... Yes, you can. Just follow me. And this is, this is his explanation. The, the consequence of being his disciple is that um, they have these wonderful, eschatological, eternal uh, promises that they can expect. Happier are those persecuted on account of righteousness. We call this the platform of the kingdom. The coming kingdom will not include you being persecuted, disciples of the Lord being persecuted. But in the time in which Jesus is offering the kingdom, the one who embodies the kingdom is killed by the state. Okay? Because of a political process uh, inspired by Satan through a religious uh, autocracy uh, running a small population in a backwater of the Roman Empire. The Romans kill him, but they do it because of political pressure from the Judeans. And as you know, this is the story. And so this is, this is very raw for Matthew's readers. Very real. Well, if he's the king, why did the state of Rome kill him? We've read Daniel too. He's supposed to grind the Romans to powder. Read Daniel 2. The, the The kingdom's supposed to completely dispense with this Roman Empire. It is. It will. It's coming. So in the time in which they live, happier are those who who are persecuted on account of righteousness because, again, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did you see the book ends between the first beatitude and the last one? The first one says, happy are the the poor in spirit because belonging to them, it's a genitive of possession, belonging to them is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one, happier are those persecuted on account of righteousness because belonging to them is the kingdom of heaven. Same exact language, same exact Greek instruction. And so, um, Poor in spirit and more those don 't sound like good things i don 't want to be persecuted. I want to be impoverished of spirit and know my my destitution and be aware of it and mourn over my wickedness. Yeah, you want to do that because you 're not resurrected yet because you 're adopting the attitude of your heavenly Father. Verse eleven switches the attention. The reason I want to do this and lead up to this teaching in Matthew five seventeen is because he's he's talking to his disciples. Verse two says the disciples came to him and began to speak to them and and, and teach. So happy are you. He turns from the abstraction of those to you. Happy are you. Right? And then he's going to put a heavy burden on them. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You have a mission. You have an objective that your father has established for you. And this is, this is awesome. It's awesome responsibility, that, that this calling of discipleship. It's magnificent. And that's, again, I believe one of the twin purposes of the gospel of Matthew. What happened to the kingdom? What's well, coming. And what are we supposed to do now? We're his disciples. Happy are you when they insult you and persecute and falsely say all kinds of wicked words about you? on account of me. This is what you can expect if you'll disciple up. You can expect them, whoever they are, under the deception, with the veil over their hearts every time the law is read, under the deception of Satan who has deceived the nations, you can expect them to persecute you. Happy are you when they do this. Insult, that's tough. Insult. I think a lot of our behavior and a lot of our discourse is governed by the fear of insult. That's Sticks and stones may break my bones, right? But my tweets don't age very well. We're scared, uh, not of the Lord. We don't fear the Lord and want to only act righteousness. We're scared of, of reprisal of consequences. The, but they're not just going to, per, going to insult you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to lie against you. And I want you to see yourself in the pattern of your Savior. This is exactly what happened to him. And so he's including, and this is the gospel, Matthew's going to develop that when you get to the gospel section of how they ultimately treat him. All the gospels demonstrate this, that the nation of Israel rejected him ultimately because the leadership, uh, deceived by Satan in a religious fervor, apparently, and I, it may be a cynical religious fervor, uh, decided that this one has to die. And, and he's the only righteous man of all time. But it seemed like the thing to do when they did all their mathematics, when they did all their reasoning, when they put it all through their theological calculator, they said, we got to kill him. Which tells you they need to throw out their calculator. They don't know how to handle the text. And that's where we're headed to when Jesus explains and exegetes the Mosaic law. He says, further, to, to double down on this, on rejoicing, happy are you when they insult you, rejoice and Exult. First command in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice and exult because your reward is great in heaven. Why should you rejoice and exult? Because they're pulling your fingernails out in uh, in a torture situation. No. Why should you rejoice and exult? Because... Uh, because you have been uh, disenfranchised or blackballed at work or whatever the thing is for the sake of the gospel. That's not what what he's saying. The reason you rejoice is not because of what's happening now. It's because of what is coming then. And that's the pattern again of our Lord Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12 who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So this is our pattern. This is is taking Christ and his character and seeking it and walking after that example. And that's what disciples do as we'll see um, if you do the whole New Testament on discipleship. Rejoice and exult because your reward is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. You are in really good company if the religious administrative state, uh, if you will, of, of, of play in whatever culture that's been corrupted by Satan's cosmic system, if they persecute you, they persecuted the prophets that God sent them to. The prophets are tough. It's tough to read Isaiah and Jeremiah, for example. They're tough. You read through there for your devotion. Some of you can testify that, yes, it's tough. Others have said, no, I haven't really done that. You read through the prophets for a little light reading in your devotion. You're like, this doesn't read like the epistles. It's really hard. I mean, it sounds like God's mad at them in Isaiah. That that sounds like he's angry. And if you're walking with me in Isaiah in the Wednesday night thing, that's, You've seen for years, it's really fun, but it's challenging and there's little puzzles and riddles and poems and you have to work through it and see what God is saying, but there's always a blessing in doing this, right? There's always a blessing. One of the great things that shines through when you read Isaiah is that everything exalted against God is gonna be mown down and forced into a a humiliation and everyone who humbles himself before God in his presence and the fear of the Lord will be exalted. That's the pattern. That's the expectation. And another great idea is that the people that Isaiah was sent to minister to would not receive his message. When Isaiah is commissioned, God tells him, they're not going to hear you, but you're going to keep saying it. And the more you say it, the more they're going to be accountable. And, and so 700 years before Jesus said these things, they're rejecting and persecuting Isaiah. And the theory is that he was killed uh, for his testimony. It's a, it's a legend. We don't, the Bible doesn't say, but that's the theory. In verses 13 through, 14, or 13 through um, 16, he then lays this heavy burden on them of being salt and light. When I say a heavy burden, I don't mean you can't lift it. I just mean that without the Holy Spirit, you can't lift it. Without God working in you, you can't do what he's saying because it's to reflect the light of God, to be his uh, seasoning for the world that you live in. And I didn't say you're the meal. I didn't say we're going to fix the culture. I didn't say we're going to bring the kingdom. I said, we're salt, we're light. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt should become tasteless, literally uh, uh, the the Greek word is morino. If should become, where we get the word uh, for foolish or to be foolish, when salt is foolish, it's tasteless. But if the salt should become tasteless, then by what will it be salted? It's nothing, literally, unto nothing is it capable anymore. So it's good for nothing except being thrown out and trampled on by men. And then he says, you're the light of the world. A city located or set atop a mountain cannot or is not able to be hidden. So salt becomes useless and the city cannot help but shine its light is the idea. We talked about light in the darkness. When you're out in the, in the wilderness, you see a city uh, on a distance on a hill. The light of the city is very dazzling compared to the darkness around you. Neither did they light a lamp and set it under a peck measure, under a basket. But upon the lampstand, it illuminates all those in the house. The light has been lit. The, the lamp, think of a little, one of these little olive oil, uh, kind of little bowl lamps that they had. This lamp has been lit so that people can experience the light from the lamp. And whoever did that had a plan in mind. They didn't say, oh, I want it to be dark. They lit the light because they want the light to shine. And so the, the, the thing that grabs me about the salt and the light is that these are instruments in someone else's hands. Somebody else has an objective for these tools. The light is not a, a law unto itself. If you are salt, then someone is holding the salt shaker. If you are light, someone is lighting the lamp. You're not your own. You're not for your own purpose. And I know that's kind of a simple idea, but it can be very profound as we get um, as we get, get into uh, a dark phase of carnal narcissism at times. In this way, light your light. In this way, your light. In what way? In the way that someone lights a lamp and it, and it illuminates the house. In this way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. This is the instruction, so that they may see your good deeds, As we said, I hope you know, this is a contrast with what comes later. Later, he's going to say, don't do your deeds so people can see them. Because if you do, then people will approve of your deeds and then you've got your reward. And it's talking about why God rewards, whether you uh, are doing the deed for him or whether you're doing it for people's approval or applause. And the um, difference between verse 16 and what he does in chapter 6 with that is the motivation. Of course you let your light shine so that people can glorify God. And that's the same reason that you do your good deeds in secret so that your father who's in secret will reward you because you're seeking to glorify God. It's not about you. In both cases, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. All right. So we're the city on the hill. And that brings us to 5.17-20, through 20, the introduction of Jesus' instruction concerning the Mosaic Law. He hasn't touched on the law yet, and now he's going to get into it with this introduction. He says, do not suppose. That's to think in a tentative way. Don't entertain this thought. Don't conceive of this and, and play with this thought that, that, that this is the way. It, don't think or suppose that I came to demolish, Kataluo, to demolish, usually, D.A. Carson says, usually used, of buildings because it is usually used in buildings, to tear down, to demolish the law or the prophets. Now, some of you will uh, at times read through this very quickly and say the law and then skip what it says the prophets. But in every manuscript tradition, it's both there in the law and the prophets. And what this means is that he's not talking about the Ten Commandments so much as the Hebrew scriptures. It's really important to get this. The law and the prophets is a summary for Tanakh. The T in Tanakh is Torah. The N in Tanakh. The N is Nevi'im, that's the prophets. And the K, Tanakh, the K is Ketuvim. So the law and the prophets and the writings. Ketuvim means the writings. The law, prophets, and writings is one way of summarizing the entirety of the Old Testament. And another way is to shorten that and just say the law and the prophets. This is the entirety of Genesis through Malachi that he's talking about now. He's talking about the Bible. And it's really helpful, I think, to see that. Did not suppose that I came to demolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to demolish kataluo. I did not come to demolish, but to play Ra'o, to fulfill. What is the purpose for which Jesus came in verse 17? He did not come to do away with, to demolish, to abolish, to nullify the law and the prophets it came to fulfill. And so this gets into some really excellent theological conversations, some really challenging stuff. But here's what I want to start with. Do you believe that? Do you believe what Jesus said? I've talked to a number of believers that think that if there's any commands going on, then that's legalism because they're theologically oriented and not biblically trained. <laughs> The, the law of Christ uh, motivates us as believers to, to, um, to, to bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6. And Galatians is the great epistle uh, about the question of the Mosaic law. So um, I believe this with all my heart, but it's subject to interpretation. In what, in what sense does he mean this? And I think it's really important to understand that everything he does as the centerpiece of history is fulfilling what was promised and expected by God through the scriptures. That's the ultimate take, take I have on this, is that I believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the commands and the prophecies of the Old Testament. It's, an, it's all looking at him. It's all about him. It's always been all about him. Here he is. He's the one. And that's what it means, the Messiah the Mashiach, the anointed one, he's the one. So the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been longing for, the one we've been looking for, that's him. That's what this means, the Messiah. And that's the sense in which he says, I have come to fulfill. And this um, aligns with what we had earlier in Matthew when he says this was done to fulfill. When we're quoting Old Testament scripture and saying there's a connection here between coming out of Egypt and the sojourn in Egypt with Joseph and Mary, there are these instances where he's pointing the entirety of the scriptures understand for a first century Jewish Christian readership that had believed in Christ by the proclamation of the gospel by the apostles and disciples now they're hearing more about how the entirety of scripture is pointing at him and see we believe this with all our hearts don't we that all scripture is God breathed all of the Old Testament scripture is God breathed when God told um, Hosea to marry Gomer Okay? And whatever the world God is doing with that, that's not a good Christmas time season message, right? The go marry Gomer, wife of harlotry, right? Um, you know what you're getting into beforehand. Most people don't, but he knew, right? And still, but it's God breathed. God, Theopneustos, God has given that prophecy for a purpose, and there is a, a right way, God way to interpret it, what he means by what he says. And so God did not come. Jesus did not come, God in the flesh, to demolish the law, to oppose the law. He came to fulfill the law. And the people that understand the law are saying, Lord, we need whatever it is you have to bring because we don't have it. And this is the grace that is inherent in any reference to the law. The law is calling for God to do something because as Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are filthy rags in God's sight. So, this is a mission of fulfillment, Jesus says. And in verse 18, for truly, that's amen. And I'll just point out real quick, A M E N in Greek. I know y'all can't read Greek yet, but there you go. You're reading Greek. See the A? Everybody agrees that's an A. You're reading Greek. If you squint your eyes right, that weird looking U shape is really a lowercase M. You see the M? It goes up and down and back up and back down. That's an M. You see the M? Forevermore, that's a, that's a that's an M. And then that weird N shape is a long E. And I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about it. That's just the long E in Greek. And then this V, isn't a V, it's an N. Because in Greek, the noon is spelled with the V shape. Again, that's just weird, but you just, that's how it is. So now you can read amen. And someone recently asked me, Daddy, why do we say amen? Who, somebody called me Daddy. It was one of my kids. Daddy, why is, why is uh, amen? Why do we say amen when we pray? And I said, oh, that's a great question. You just ask a question that'll take us through all the entire Bible. It really is. I love the entire Bible questions, right? And so as we get ready for third hour, I'll explain to you, amen, through the Bible. Um, amen is from the Hebrew word aman, uh, aleph, memnun, and, and there's a couple ways that it's said in Hebrew. And, and I've told you this before, but I really want you to know this. This is the word for faith. Pistis, pistuo is aman, if you go to the New Testament. There are other words that are uh, other pictures of faith, like batak and some other words, but the key one that is pistuo for the Greek translation is aman. Aman is essentially, essentially, when someone is faithful, when someone is sturdy, when you can count on them, when they're reliable. God is my rock and my refuge. That is God being aman, being faithful, and it's um, used that way of God. When man recognizes God's faithfulness, it's in a different stem and it's the causative stem. We're recognizing the faithfulness in God. And this is the, uh, the way faith comes to its presentation through the Old Testament and then brought into the New Testament. It is simply that God, not we, we're not faithful. God is faithful. We're not we're not being steadfast to God. Maybe he'll accept us. No, God, the faithful one, has provided, and we are recognizing that, and that's that act that we call faith. And so in English, understand, we kind of have it backwards. But, but the point is, Amon, when God says, when Jesus says, truly, amen, I say to you, he's saying that this is, this is a certainty. This is something that we take as an article of faith. It's a trustworthy statement. It's sturdy. And that's uh, apparently um, what he does. And Jesus, this is one of Jesus' uh, kind of affectations, how he talked. He, and I don't know any, if anyone else said these things a lot. You know, read dialogue from other people, they don't say amen a lot. When Jesus says amen, uh, amen, which is um, uh, it's trustworthy. It's, you, could, you could take this one to the bank. And that's what that's what this is, so truly is how it'll often be translated. Um, you might even say verily. And that just means it's trustworthy. It's true. It's true. And then I, I am saying to you, this is the, the words in this, in this moment that I'm speaking to you. And then this is going to be really challenging. Until heaven and earth pass away, one iota or one kariah from the law will absolutely not be able to pass away. That is until all has been fulfilled. And so what you have here is an until sandwich. You see the until sandwich. Verse 18, he starts with a ha'os until, and he ends with a hos, with an until. And that never jumps out at you in English until you try to diagram that sentence and then you say, this is a weird sentence. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, that's a temporal marker, nothing will pass away from the law until all has been fulfilled. It's two untils. We don't really do that, but Jesus does. He can. It's okay, he, he can do that. So this is one of these little riddles that you didn't know was there when you're just reading through your Bible. But when we look at it, when we examine it up close, you say, wow, that's, that's interesting. And I think it's, a, it's kind of a, like an appositional until. The two things are the same. All has been fulfilled when all the things that God says he's gonna do have come to, come to take, take place. And this makes us eschatological. It makes it end times. The end stuff is now in view, is, is what he's saying. And that's what you kind of got when you read through it in English. Now, I know if you're reading up here, congratulations. You're still with me and others. You've checked out. You've looked at your watch. You've said, I can't stand another second. And I ask you to repent. <laughs> the word that your Bible might translate as uh, the shortest stroke of a pen, some say, or a tittle. That's this word, and I wanted you to see it because we write I-O-T-A. We write that one out. One iota. That's a, I thought that was a Southern word. No, that's a Judean, Southern Judah, a Southern King. That's a, that's a Jewish word, iota. It's the Yoda. It's the Hebrew letter or the Greek Greek letter I, the Greek letter I, in Greek, I, the Greek letter in Greek. Now uh, that's interesting because um, we say it's the jot, the jot. Let me jot this down. Well, that's because in Hebrew the Greek iota is the Hebrew yod, the letter y y y. And that that well, that's a mess too. In fact, every time you read Jesus' name, it's Yesu. It starts with an I. They don't have a J or, or a Y in Hebrew. Or, I'm sorry, in Greek. They don't have a Y in Greek. They've got a lot of Ys in Hebrew. Okay, so you have to kind of, this is Yoda says, I-O-Yoda is how they say Yod, the, the, the Y letter. That's what an iota is. They're saying the Y letter from Hebrew. I'm sorry if that's surprising to you. I think that's really cool. But anyway, um, that, but, so we write iota or, or jot, yod. But what is a kariah? Kariah. K-E-R. See that P letter right there? That's an R. All day, every day. That's the letter rho. Sorry. But, you, but you, you're almost there. You see the K, the E, the A-I-A. A. It's just the P. That's an R that bothers you. you. You can read Greek. You English readers can read Greek. All right. Kariah. This is... Um, a word that means horn in Greek. And uh, it's, it doesn't mean horn like the animal horn, but you can see how a horn is kind of angled up. Words in Hebrew that have little squiggles on them, have these little horns, are differentiated from other letters. Some letters will have, it's not, not words, but letters. Like the letter R in Hebrew is different from the letter D in Hebrew because there's a little squiggle on it. There's a little kariah. There's a little horn um, that is this piece of a letter. So, so I believe with absolute certainty what Jesus is saying that the smallest letter in Hebrew or the stroke of any letter, the smallest stroke of a letter, even a piece of a letter is not going to pass away from the law until all has been fulfilled. And so this is a really important verse for our view of scripture. You cannot adopt a, um, uh, a popular Uh, post-conservative, some will call it evangelical. I don't think so. You can't adopt a a trajectory hermeneutic and uh, subscribe to this statement. You can't say, well, Moses was pretty good. Paul's even better, but now we know even better. So we reject Leviticus on lifestyle, sexual sin, and we reject what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 on lifestyle, sin, and sexual deviancy. And now we know to accept everybody because there's a trajectory. You can't do that with this kind of statement because you have to hang on to Leviticus. You can't untether your theology from the Mosaic law from the Old Testament because of this statement. Because Jesus says you have to hang on. And so watch what we did. We agreed. We put it all together. We bound it in one book. Very bizarre thing to do. Do you know that if you put a Greek and Hebrew, a Greek um, by New Testament and Hebrew Old Testament in the same binding, that's actually a challenging thing to do. What you have to do is you have to put your Hebrew Bible. um, Let's see. How does this work? You put your Hebrew Bible back here on the right side so that they open their Bible the correct way, right to left. Genesis 1-1, back here. And it's not going left to right, it's going right to left. That's your Hebrew Bible. But then if you want to have a New Testament bound with that, like your New Testament 27 books in Greek, you've got to put it over here because this is our Greek Bible going left to right. And you print it this way. I have a Bible printed this way. It's like a Frankenstein thing. So... And so the, 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 the Greek is on its correct side. The Hebrew is on its correct side. And, uh, and that's a very bizarre thing to do because there is no Hebrew scripture in Greek as inspired. We have the Septuagint translation, but it's not the scriptures. It's a translation of the scriptures. The New Testament is absolutely, and especially Matthew, written in Greek. There's a thing out there that Matthew is in Hebrew. And maybe there was a Hebrew Matthew, but the one inspired by the spirit pre- pre- preserved for the church is in Greek. And so... It's very strange that we have this thing jammed together, but we agree with Jesus. We're submitting to him. He's our Lord. And he said, you keep the Old Testament close. And you read it and you read it carefully. And we try to read it consistently. And that consistency means, yes, it is inspired. And yes, it is for my understanding of God's righteousness. And no, I am not covenant partner with God at Mount Sinai under the Mosaic law. Now in verse 19 he says therefore whoever destroys or abolishes whoever destroys or abolishes one of the least of these commandments and who should teach thus to men he will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever should do and teach this one will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so you can't get over the mosaic law. You have to have it. I believe what he's saying is you have to have it kill you. I mean the the implication is you can't just skip it and say, well, God didn't like that back then. But now, no, there's a problem with mankind that the law points you to. And you can't, you can't teach against it. And what Jesus is saying in context is that the people who are building a hedge around the law, the religious crowd, the scribes and Pharisees, they're not really holding you accountable to the actual dictates of the law. I'll show you with murder and, and, and adultery and divorce and these things. I'll show you how they're not holding to the law. They're teaching against it. And that's, again, the contextual read, which takes us to our last verse. For I'm saying to you that if your righteousness, your dikaiosune, our key word in Romans, and I think the, really the New Testament is pointing, the whole Bible is pointing to this. Unless your righteousness does not greatly exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, Perisuo is to go beyond. play playon is to go beyond a lot. This is, I don't know why they try and surpass. It says greatly surpass. There's a whole word in here in every manuscript. I don't know why they do that. But anyway, um, unless it does not greatly exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you absolutely, you will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why do I say Absolutely. Because he says the strongest possible way of negation with a, with a possibility a, a mood of possibility in the subjunctive. When you negate the subjunctive, it's, a, it's an emphatic negation, which means we're negating possibility. You won't be able in any possible way is what that means. It's like Galatians 5.16. I'm saying that if your righteousness does not greatly exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will absolutely not be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a jaw dropper for these people. They are shocked at this suggestion. In their culture, the scribes and Pharisees are the Bible thumpers. They're the people that know, and we don't know. But we've delegated to them to know. Oh, there's a new prophet, and oh, we got a prophet. 400 years since we had a prophet. We'll go hear him, and he's pointing to this one man that the, that that's the Messiah. Well, let's go hear him. And Jesus is saying the schoolhouse that you think is authoritative is broken. It's broken. And you cannot get there. You cannot even get into the kingdom. I also want to point this out. We've tried to do too much in too little time today. But I want to point this out. For I'm saying to you that if your righteousness does not greatly exceed the scribes and Pharisees, this is an advancement. He'll often do this. He does it all through chapter 5. It's an advancement on the previous statement of least or greater in the kingdom. That's not outside the kingdom. That's least in the kingdom or great in the kingdom. And now you can't even get into the kingdom. He's, he does this double down kind of thing. He says, you know, you'll go to the jailer the, and, and you go to the judge and the jailer and the torturer. Like he's, he, he gets bigger as he goes. And this is complete exclusion from the kingdom that he's talking about. You will not enter. And some have said, well, entering the kingdom means that you get to be like, you know, important in the kingdom, like in verse 19. But that's not what he says. He says you can't be in it. And that alone, that and verse 48 make me conclude that he's talking about being poor in spirit and recognizing that you need something that you cannot do on your own. The grace of God is in verse 20. If you're practical righteousness, some have distinguished between forensic justification righteousness and experiential sanctification righteousness. They've they've done this discussion and made that the issue. And, And they're saying, well, this is sanctification righteousness. It may be. It may be, but we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are supposed to walk in the light as God Himself is in the light. This, the Christian life is a walk in righteousness that God brings forth through us, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. It's righteous that you love as Christ has loved. It's righteous you rejoice in the Lord always. It's righteous, it's God's righteousness in practice that you would walk in these ways that against such things there's no law. And so, what am I saying? That you have to have God's righteousness to be acceptable to him. And the only channel, the only avenue of God's righteousness has and always will be, has always been and always will be that Jesus, God in the flesh, paid for our sins on the cross. The law in Jesus' teaching and in in Paul's explanation and in its own statement by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, partly given by God in the burning bush, the law that God has given or or Mount Sinai. The law is always pointing to God's righteousness, and that always presents a differential between us unless God does something to us. We are not the righteous. God is righteous, but in Christ we can be made. We have been made righteous. We've been declared, I should say, righteous, and we're growing with respect to that salvation as we put on Christ. And so one of the great deliverances of the Reformation is the recovery of justification, that it's a settled event when you first trust in Christ. It's one of the most important insights, perhaps the most important insight Luther had, that justification, the declaration of righteousness, is not your performance of various deeds or sacraments. It's that Christ paid for your sins and you trust in him and he recovered Romans 4. Very important part of of what happened there. So what's he doing? He's saying, if you're not bringing forth the fruits of righteousness, you can't even enter the kingdom. And that has to be beyond what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. And it goes back to the question of forensic righteousness. It goes back to whether or not you have been saved, if you will. And that's the declaration of righteousness to your account upon simple childlike faith. So let me ask you the question. Do you, like the scribes and Pharisees, think you're keeping the law? Do you think you're good enough? Do you think that you've done enough to be worthy of God's favor? I mean, yes, I believe in Jesus, but have you actually trusted in him alone for your salvation? Let me ask you this way. Have you sufficiently failed at getting rid of your own sins to know that somebody else is going to have to do something about your sin guilt because you'll never get ahead of it? Have you, have you tried and strived hard enough after righteousness that you know you haven't been able to accomplish this? this is the C.S. Lewis approach. Go for it. Go keep the Ten Commandments. Get back to me when you've worn yourself out. Because you can't bring forth the righteousness of God from your sinfulness. All you can do is recognize the work of Jesus to pay for your sins on the cross. works that God requires or that you would trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Our Father, thank you for this eternal life that we've celebrated today, that we have because of the righteousness of Christ. Father, it's a mystery to us of many theological questions we can ask, but we thank you for the privilege of knowing that we're securely in the grasp of your Son because and only because of what you've done. You sent him to die for our sins you, through the Holy Spirit, made that real to us. We trusted in Jesus, simple, the simple hands of faith, receiving that eternal gift. And you have blessed us by making us part of your family, uniting us to your Son through the Spirit. Father, help us grow strong with respect to these things and take them to heart so that we don't reject your righteousness under the guise of self-righteousness. And we don't pretend to be self-righteous in ourselves, but we're hungering and thirsting. After your truth, after your righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. Amen. Come on up, Justin. Let's sing our way home.